Now make your way to your seats. Well, Liz, she never does what I ask. Liz had a poem. We'll let her read it eventually. Oh, there she is. Come read your... Yes, please. You're going to need this, and you may have to stand over there to do it. Liz posted a poem this morning, and then I was thinking she should read that at church, and then she came to me and said, I want to read that. (sighs) On Friday night, my hope died. The sky wept itself dark, the ground broke apart, and all creation cried for the bloodied innocent hammered into a tree. There were whispers of a torn curtain, but they didn't reach my ears or mend my mangled heart or stem the bitter tears as we took the body down. On Saturday, we grieved, hiding from the troops whom we'd once believed would be overthrown by the carpenter's boy, who had preached and fed and healed and was now dead. But then on Sunday, the devastating beauty of that Sunday, when time and space were blown out of shape and angels wrapped in electric grace rolled the impossible away, He's not here, they proclaimed. For glory had risen, our failings were forgiven, and the rules of time and space were rewritten in an empty tomb declared. Love is alive. Amen. Thank you, Liz. Well, it's no surprise what we're going to talk about today. You can turn in your text to Matthew 28 in your Bibles. What happened that first Sunday morning, that Resurrection Sunday, changed everything. This is the basic claim of our faith, what we believe, that that something happened in that tomb, that death came back to life, that, that forever changed the very fabric of reality. What is true and what is not was completely changed that day. And I know it's a bold claim, but it's one of the things we hold on to as we seek to live in a relationship with Jesus that he died for us, but that he didn't stay dead. And so we're going to read this text in Matthew 28, verses 1 to 20. Like I say, it's no surprise. And then we'll talk about it. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as the snow. The guards were so so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now, I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. They ran to tell his disciples, and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like I said, no one's surprised to find that text. We've all heard the story about the event before, and it's celebratory, and it's amazing, and it's really hard to grasp that it actually happened. But there is one thing about this text that we often forget, one thing we don't really think about as we read it on Resurrection Sunday morning and we celebrate. There's one thing we overlook that this most amazing and most crucial and critical event of the Christian faith, it starts at a tomb. It starts at a tomb. Now, what do I mean by that? We, we read the story and we forget that, that everything starts with women going to take care or see a dead body. I, I grew up in North Carolina. A lot of you know that. I've told you that a ton of times, and some of you can hear it in my accent. No matter how hard I try to speak Canadian... You still hear those little twinges. There's one place when I go back to North Carolina, which is not very often, but when I go, I always go to this one place, and here's a picture of it. Nine, just a little over nine years ago, my dad died. His name is MF, and that's a story in and of itself, I'll tell you one day. But I go to this graveside just near where I grew up. Now, when I go there, I go for a lot of reasons. I go because reminds me where I'm from, and I go to pay respects to my dad, who was a tremendous influence in my life, a guy that I'm so thankful. I go to be thankful, and, and, and be thankful to God for what this man was to me. But I don't go to see my dad. I don't go to talk to him. I don't expect to see him sitting there. When I show up, I go for a lot of reasons, and you've got to get these women, as they went to the tomb, were not expecting anything like they found. They were going to a place that's, that, that was dead. Verse 1, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And it's important to remember because resurrection only has meaning when there's death present. It's, if, if, there's, if, if, if there's no death there, resurrection is this idea. And that's all it is. Part of celebrating Resurrection Sunday is to remember what's gone before it. And that's why we at our church, we go through what I call the gift of Lent. We spend a whole season, six or seven weeks, a time of self-reflection, of remembering and saying, God, look into our hearts, expose the dead places here, the things that, where we've messed up, where we've, where we've failed. We want to be honest about who we are before you. We want to repent and realize, because this, this gift of Lent reminds us of the deadness that we feel in our lives. We go back to that, that prophecy back in Isaiah 53 where it talks about Jesus, that, that we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We have to start celebrating resurrection by acknowledging the darkness and the death that we live with every single day. Through Lent, we come back to this verse in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as you did that, if you walk through Lent the way we do it as a church, I'm sure some of you found things in your life that you're not proud of. You saw selfishness and pride and ego and, and, and ways that you just aren't living the way you want to live. And see, Lent is a gift to us because it reminds us of the reality of the darkness. The world and me and you, we are not what we want to be. There's a darkness that weighs on us. It's a, it's a tomb. And what I want to tell you today is we, we run from that. We want to ignore that. We don't even want to acknowledge that. But resurrection starts at that place. See, we have to remember the reality of death in our world, in our life, in our own hearts. And we can do that because of today. Because death is not the final word. John 1.5 says that the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. See, what I see in verse 1 is that the women are grieving. They're going to this place of death. They have loved and they've followed Jesus and his death has brought pain to their lives. But what we see in their actions is the refusal to avoid it. You see, we, we come to that dark place in our own life and we want to run away from it. We don't want to acknowledge our sin. We don't want to acknowledge our brokenness. We want to just whitewash it. We want to paint it. We want to make it look good. But resurrection starts at a tomb. You see, our lives are full of this kind of brokenness, and sometimes we feel so overwhelmed that we just want to compartmentalize it away, forget it, ignore it. But this morning, we, I want you to start at that place of pain, of suffering, of darkness, of failure, whatever it is. That's where you need to start. Because that, that's where everything changes. And if you're not willing to go there, it keeps resurrection from going that deep into your life. Now, once you go there and you encounter that Jesus is alive, even in your darkness and deadness, there are differing reactions to the resurrection. In our text, we see lots of different reactions. And you can probably identify with one or all of them, maybe. I don't know. Everybody is reacting differently. The first thing we see is fear, surprisingly mixed with joy, right? The soldiers are so terrified by the event, it says they shook and became like dead men, which is a very theological term to say they fainted. Boom. Right? Now get this. If I fainted at something like that, that would not be a big deal. These guys, though, were soldiers. These were guys that were battle-tested. They had seen some things in the Roman army that would make a man like me quake, and they had survived them. And yet at this moment, they fainted dead away. And the women were afraid too. That's why the first thing the angel said to them was, do not be afraid. First thing Jesus said to them when he met, do not be afraid. But they, they it says, they left with fear mixed with joy. And you know, as we come to that dark place in our life and we begin to see Jesus and how good and loving and, and merciful he is, sometimes that makes us afraid. We respond with fear. 
The very fact that he knows us as we are, the good and the bad, can be terrifying. And I would even say this, if you've never been a little afraid of what God might do in your life, I don't think you've ever really encountered him. You know, you look through the Old Testament, you see people encounter God like Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, the guy that's one of the the most righteous, the holy, the guy who speaks for God. And when he actually sees God, he falls flat on his face. And his first thing is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Peter, the great disciple, right? He's with Jesus, and they pull in this huge catch of fish. And Peter is so overwhelmed because he gets a glimpse of God and his power, and he falls on his knees, and he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When you come face to face with Jesus, it can actually be terrifying. And there there are several different things we can do with that fear. We see the response of the the powerful people of that day was denial and (laughs) self-protection. They do what smart people do. They just decide it didn't happen, right? The the soldiers run into the chief priests and the rulers, and they they concoct a plan. First, the best thing to help people believe that it didn't happen is we'll give you a large sum of money. Right? We know you saw this. We know it scared you so bad that it fainted you away. But behind door number one is this big bag of gold. And the second thing, we'll come up with a story. Hey, here's a new story. The disciples came and they stole him while we were asleep. And they're like, well, what if we're sleeping on? We'll die for that. That's, we're soldiers. We can't sleep at our task. And they said, oh, don't worry. If the governor hears about it, we'll take care of you. They just made plans to deny it. And often when we come face to face with Jesus... Not as a concept or an idea, but as a real person who demands allegiance in our life, who says, follow me. We're afraid. And so we just deny the reality we're faced with. We ignore it. We come up with a different way of seeing the world. We know that Jesus calls us to follow. We know what that means. We know that means there's surrender there. There's forgiveness. There's loving people that don't love us. And so we just say, ah, I think I'll just deny it. I'll take care of myself. We human beings are very resilient. We will come up with a million ways to not do what we know we should do. How many of you have done that? Right? I remember in university, I could find a million ways not to study. Uh, I'm a diabetic. I can find a million ways to justify eating a chocolate bar. Right? My mind has no limits to its creativity when I'm trying to do something that I want to do. Interesting, there was a study back in 1947. I realize it's kind of dated. It was on the psychology of rumor how rumors travel, but what they did was they took a group of people and they put this diagram up on the screen. And they had one person come in and look at the picture, take in the whole picture, and then they took the diagram off and they had people come in one by one and had him tell what was on the screen. Now, what what they were trying to track is how stories get passed. What stands out in people's mind? What What surprised them is that in over half the cases... What was said initially was that a black man holding a razor accosted a white man in a business suit. Now, I mean, it's 1947. Hopefully we're moving past that a bit. But what they said, it's, it's astounding the, the, the human mind's ability to interpret what it sees in line with what it wants to believe. This lady writing about it, Emily Griffin, said, As human beings who desperately desire our lives to be consistent and untroubled, we'll go to great lengths to reject a message that implies that we're wrong. And that's exactly what we do with Jesus. 
We like him as long as he's doing things we want him to do. But when he says, you know, you need to love that person, you need to serve, you need to forgive, we're like, wait a second. I'm going to shift that around a little bit. I'm going to make faith way more about what I want out of it than what Jesus is calling me to be. We'll protect ourselves even if it means denying what we've seen and experienced with our own two eyes. That's one way we respond to that fear. Now the disciples and the women responded another way. They reacted by worship and some doubt. Darren's words were so appropriate, right? In, in verse 9, it says the women worship. Worship literally means to bow before a sovereign, right? That's what we do when we come to worship. And it's not me up here. It's, it's, we come to worship to bow before God, to surrender our lives to him. That's why we come together. And again, in verse 17, the disciples, when they see him, they worship. But then there's that phrase, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? They've seen this guy crucified. And now he's standing before them. By this time, he's been with them several different times. And they worship him, but some doubted. And I know Darren, Darren was talking about how that story helped my unbelief, makes him comforted. I feel the same way. Right? There are times that I just, yes, Jesus, I'm going to surrender to you. And then it gets hard, and I wonder, and I doubt, and I struggle. And, and, and I, the older I get, the more comfort I find in the fact that the very people that knew him, that saw him die, and that saw him after he was alive, they still struggled with believing. I want to worship. I want to surrender. I want to follow. I really, really do. But my life gets wrapped up in my own self-protection. And I find myself thinking, really? Can I stake my life on this? So I appreciate the honesty of the text. They took their fear and they worshiped, but even in their worship, there was some doubting and some struggle. You know what? If you're here today and you're like, I'm I don't know if I believe, that's exactly where we come to surrender. You don't worship because you, you know it all. You worship because you're surrendering to something that at some point you can't even understand. However, as we go through that struggle with Jesus, who stands in front of us, the call is always the same. We are called to be on mission with God. Jesus calls them on mission. He says at the end of our text, go and make disciples. He tells them to do two things. The, the word disciple really... Disciple sounds, we don't use that very often, but you could replace it with the word apprentice. The Greek word means an apprentice, like a a carpenter's apprentice. They would have used the same word for that as Jesus used for disciple. Somebody that follows someone, learns to do what they do, and eventually does it themselves. So Jesus says, go and make apprentices to me, doing two things, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which you saw today, and teach them to obey whatever I've commanded you. To be on mission he said, but, but what about the fear, Jeff? What about the doubt? What about the struggles as I go on mission? The last two words of, of, of that point, on mission with God, are vitally important for you to grasp. Verse 20, he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, the text is reminding us that the power of the resurrection and the call of Jesus to be on mission are summed up, and, and we're never left alone in that. We are with him as we do this. Even if we doubt, even if we struggle, he's with us as we go. And so I want to end today with, I'm trying to avoid basketball analogies in my sermons, (laughs) or at least sprinkle them in, and I'm not really going to dig into one. But one of the things that I've learned in, in my years as a basketball coach is there's a very important thing we do called practice. 
And if you never practice, you're never going to get any better. And, and we do things in practice that really don't make sense sometimes, but what I've learned is if you do it enough, you actually develop skills. So going through the motions of something over and over sinks it into your head. So, so I want to talk as we close today about how to practice resurrection. Wendell Berry, a poet and a farmer, he wrote a poem called Manifesto, the, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. It's a great poem. But he uses the metaphor of farming to talk about how we've messed up the world and we need to do something different. And, and, and so he writes this poem. The last two words of the poem are this, practice resurrection. Now, what does he mean by that? That's what I, I think it's good advice, but what, what does it mean? I think he's saying take resurrection from the idea of a concept, something that you think or something that you believe, and begin to actually practice it. That's what the baptism we did is all about. It says in in Romans 6, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We can practice that, what he's done. So how do we live a new life? I'll leave you with three possibilities, just three ideas to, to kick around as you're practicing resurrection. First, realize darkness is a part of the journey. We cannot forget that resurrection starts at the tomb, and you have to start at the tomb, whatever that might be in your life. Whatever the darkness, the pain, the suffering, the questions, don't deny them. Don't run away from them. Don't pretend that they don't exist. This is part of the reality of life. If we hide from our tombs and the dead places in our lives, it makes it difficult to practice resurrection there. I bet everybody in here has heard the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will fear no evil for you are with me in the valley of death, in that darkness. It's only at the tomb of your life, whatever that brokenness is, whatever your failure is, whatever the thing that you think is the deadest part, it's only there that you can begin to understand how powerful the resurrection of Jesus can become. A part of that process, too, is be honest about your own reactions. If we're honest, I think we all have those same reactions. We, we worship, we fear, we doubt. Sometimes we try to control. We do all those same kind of reactions when Jesus challenges us. Jeremiah says, let us examine our ways and test them and return to the Lord in Lamentations 3. You know, we, we run from the darkness instead of being honest about it. Instead of saying, I'm running away from this because it's a painful thing in my life. I don't want to think about this. That's why we have to be honest about our reactions to the call of Jesus. God can handle it. He really can. He can handle your darkness. It's not like he's surprised. I've always had that picture when I confess something that I find out about my life to God, and I always think he kind of chuckles. Oh, you finally figured that out, did you? I've known that for years, Jeff. And you know what? He loved me all along the way before I even knew that was a problem. He loved me until I came to the point where that was a problem. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, God does not love some ideal person. He loves human beings just as we are. He does not love some ideal world, but rather the real world. Because only when we admit who we are fully to God, when we admit the darkness, only then can we begin to experience the full power of resurrection in that part of our life. 
Not as a theological concept, not as a historical event even, but as something that we practice right here, right now. See, the point of resurrection is that we come to know that Christ is risen for you and living in you as a believer. Once you come to that point, Emma said, you know, I prayed, God forgive me with my parents when I was young, and I I felt, oh man, am, am I a good enough Christian? Should I get baptized? Should I not? And I mean, at that point, from that moment, the scripture tells us Christ was living in her, alive, risen for her, living in her. She symbolized that very fact. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when you're practicing resurrection, this is what I want to tell you to do. You've got to start at the tomb. You've got, see Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You've got to start at the dead places of your life. You can't hide anything from God. At church, we get really good at hiding because we, we somehow have convinced ourselves that church is the place where we come together and try to put our best face forward and make everybody think we're doing just fine. But what good is resurrection if we're already alive? See, the, the point of church is that this is the one place where we're loved despite our brokenness. This is the one place where the, the love of Jesus should flow between us so that we can, even at our point of death, be loved and forgiven and transformed. See, to remember the resurrection, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, but guess what? Christ lives in me. Not just as an event, but as a power that helps us to trust and surrender and join the mission. And he says, I live, this, by, this, uh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that amazing? If you just want to grasp something, think of the dark tomb that you start at. Don't run from it. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is in your head, but that one thing that you think is just the worst part of your life that you're ashamed of, that brokenness, that failure, that, that whatever. And, and realize that at that point, Jesus knew all about that. He died for you. He rose from the dead to bring life into that dead place. Because Paul says, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I, I don't know what your tomb is today. I don't know what darkness it is that stares you down when you look in the mirror. But I want you to go there. And despite the fear you feel about whatever it is, I want you to meet Jesus at that place. And to worship, doubts and all. See, I guess what I want you to do is this. I want you to walk right up to that tomb, that place that, that you're ashamed of, that you, you regret, whatever it may be, whatever you see as the dead place in your life, I want you to walk up to that tomb and I want you to say, He is risen. And what do you say back? Okay, you guys are really in a dark tomb. Man, if that had been Martin Luther King Jr., you guys would have shouted that out, right? I want you to walk up to that tomb and I want you to say, He is risen. Because that is where resurrection comes. It doesn't come to easy places. It comes to broken and difficult places and it brings life out of death. And I, man, if, if there's one thing that hope needs, that BC needs, that Canada needs, that the world needs, it needs life to come to dead places. And what you say today, he is risen, he is risen indeed, is a truth that will transform the world if you'll let it start with you by going to the tomb. And when you're afraid 
And when you're doubting, you say to yourself, he's risen, he's risen indeed. There is life here. And I'm going to worship, even if it's a struggle. I'm going to surrender my life and I'm going to follow him because I'm on mission with him every single day to bring that life to the world. Let's pray. God, we do want to wake up. We want to feel that resurrection life in us. We want to know that even in the dead places of our life that you do not leave us or forsake us, that you love us, that you give yourself to us, that you come into that death and bring life. And God, we want to lay those things aside too. We don't want to keep circling back and we fail so many times, but we're just thankful that your grace is enough. And so as your church today, we want to open ourselves to you. We want to declare that you are alive in us and we want to take that hope to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. You've got to realize that is the truth that the world longs for. And we come back to this every year to remember that God is alive, working in us, working in our community. So let's try it one more time. He is risen. He is risen. My prayer for you is that as you come against those dead places in your life, that the song in your head is not, oh, you blew it again. The song in your head is, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Amen. I will.